welcome to the Cannabis Data Science Meetup. Ruth, Dr. Fisher, will be teaching us about what, well, informing us about what she's found after pawing through some of the license data, which we've collected but haven't really had a chance to look at yet. So Ruth, we'd love to, to pick up with what you were just telling me about, you know, what you're like, we're thinking about the license data, maybe, you know, what your priors were, you know, before looking at the data, and then we'd love to, you know, hear about what you may have discovered. And then Yasha and Candice, always feel free to chime in at any time. But so I had started this uh, analysis or kind of the thinking about all this years ago. And all the states, the primary licenses they issue are to grow, uh, to process or manufacture, and to sell. And then you also have like transportation and some, there's different uh different variation across states on, you know, transporting product from uh, uh, business participant to business participant. So in particular, in every state, uh, an average Joe is not allowed to transport uh, cannabis products from, say, grow sites to process manufacturing processors or whatever, uh, or dispensaries. You need to be a licensed transporter to transport product. And then kind of later, um, you get this new type of license. So the, the, the transport license is a B2B license. And then you, you transport it at the, the retailer. The retailer is allowed to sell it to users. And generally speaking, as it all started, none of the growers or the manufacturers were allowed to sell products to end users. All the end user sales had to go through the dispensaries. So then you have, you know, you have the, the clear value chain or the supply chain and the transporters are moving product from business entity to business entity. And that includes to the testing labs. And then they started adding new licenses, which were delivery licenses, which enabled B2C transportation or sales. Um, and it, it's interesting because in California, one of the, you know, the, they tend to be the kind of the the trendsetters, they started and they had a huge number of licenses for retailers that were um, obviously bricks and mortar storefronts, but then they also issued a lot of licenses that were essentially delivery only. So these places don't have a storefront, they just deliver. And in that case, they need a delivery license. And so thinking about all these different uh, types of licenses out there, I was wondering as, you know, my area's industrial organization, how do companies organize in the industry? I was wondering, you have these, now the basic, basic is, as I said, uh, to grow, to manufacture, to sell, and then kind of on the side, you have the transport. And then the labs are independent because in all states, if you want to do lab testing services and Yasha will, you know, understands this more than, than most, uh, you need to be independent. You can't own any interests in any other cannabis businesses. So I'm not really looking at the, the testing guys because they're independent. But if you look at the other guys and mostly the grow, manufacture, and sell, are these guys operating as independent entities? So one guy is growing, and now he's selling to a separate guy who's doing either extraction or and or formulating. And then is he selling to a separate guy who's doing selling? 
or do you tend to see integration where the growers are integrating and the growers are also manufacturing and selling? Now, we know that in certain states, there's different requirements on whether or not you're allowed to integrate, and in other states, you actually are required to integrate. But I was looking at kind of where you have leeway, where you're not required to integrate, are they integrating? And then if so, why is that happening? And is that for you know economic reasons? Is that for uh, regulatory reasons because there's certain bottlenecks or inefficiencies in the system that they're trying to uh, assess or, or, or kind of um, address or what? So that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, so again, it's, it's like looking at the licenses and the patterns of licenses across states and then looking at how those licenses are being kind of concentrated by particular companies and what are the combinations of the licenses that we're seeing. So that's that. So now, um, oh, and then another thing I was particularly interested in is, you know, we know that all the states, you have medical use starts first. And then in some states, after medical has been legalized for a number of years, they open it up to adult use sales. And I was very interested in understanding are the, the organizations that are involved in medical use, are they the same organizations that are also doing adult use or are you having separate companies doing the adult use from the medical use? Now, that's been very interesting to watch because that's evolved and that's definitely changed over time. And I did this analysis back in like 2019 or so, and I looked at a couple of states. And now, thanks to Keegan, he's made all this data available. I'm able to look at it for a lot more states and, and I can kind of see how it's changed. And what, what I saw in my earlier analysis is especially in California is you have these, these parallel tracks where you have separate companies are in, grow in the uh, medical uh, industry or submarket, and you had different companies in the adult use market, and there were some companies doing both, but by and large, you had these parallel uh, industries. And what you see now is you have like people, companies that are licensed in both medical and adult use in pretty much in every case. I mean, it's something, I didn't do the exact numbers, but it's like 90% of licensees are doing both medical and adult use. And, and so I guess at that, that kind of, that's, that's expected given that in all the states, again, you start with medical, but as soon as adult use comes in, the medical market just tanks. So if medical market is essentially going away and if you're catering to medical patients, you're gonna have a really hard time surviving. And so you're seeing a lot of crossover um, for you know, uh, pragmatic reasons. So that's kind of the, all the background for all this. Um, Could I yes, please. ask a question? <laughs> I'm sure you're, you're about to cover this, but what kind of comes to my mind and I'm sure this is what you're about to get to is sort of the methods between connecting all the licenses because you know the word mso you know the multi-state operator it, it first it was some it was you know something that people bragged about now it's almost become a bit of a, a pejorative but i guess it's uh you know maybe which uh, community you're in but uh, 
let's face it, a lot, almost every cannabis business that starts has ambitions to become a multi-state operator. You know, even, well, maybe not, but I I've, would imagine like even the small businesses would love to see themselves grow and expand. And you, you do see companies doing that. But I mean, we have, I haven't even had a chance to really try to do this, but I briefly noticed that, so say you're trying to see, okay, this company's operating in multiple states. I noticed right off the bat that a lot of the times they'll have different partners or different founding members, um, like, you know, apply for the license in the different states. So, you know, the license will be tied to different people. And then they'll a lot of, a lot of the times, you know, have just some ambiguous LLC that may be doing business as another company. So, so that was what I thought was going to be the biggest thing to try to track down is how can we you like kind of connect the various licenses. Um, so I'm not sure if you've uh, tried to do that yet. Um, like, so for example, like maybe they're, I don't know, like, and this is something that like, I kind of wonder if the regulators are even kind of trying to track down and enforce because it, it's such a confusing world. Like, so for example, oh, you may not be allowed to vertically integrate, but oh, what if your, you know, your spouse gets one type of license and you get another type of license? We you know what the regulators even realize. So I don't know. I that just kind of what's kind of come to my mind is, have you tried to, you know, you know, for example, I'm just trying to think of some famous um, multi-state operators. Of course, you know, like Cure Leaf comes to mind, um, it, but another ones um, like Cookies, and then in the news, we, we the reason this came to mind was. We were there, there was that news story in Oregon about Lamota, and they were bragging about all the licenses they owned. And we were just trying to track down all their licenses. And that's when we noticed that it's really difficult to actually do a count of them. But uh, anywho, I'll quit rambling on and kind of pass the ball back to your court. But that's the biggest thing on my mind is um, trying to you classify apples with apples, oranges with oranges, yeah. even if they go by different names. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's so there's the issue of multi-state operators is, in my experience, a, a contentious one because cannabis, when you think about most of the people involved in cannabis, not most of the people, I should say, when you think about how cannabis came to be, it's a legacy operation. And the multi-state operators tend to be kind of, in my sense, these outside people coming in trying to monopolize the industry. And you have the legacy people saying, wait a minute, that's not how cannabis is done. It should be like craft operations or small growers or whatnot. Now, a complication in here, or kind of it addresses this type of issue, is the states, I mean, we know that each state is its own little country. Um, and the states for equity reasons generally require residency requirements in order to be able to get a license. So if you're talking about, you know, someone operating in multiple states, but each state requires you to be a resident 
in order to be able to get a license, you need to kind of square that circle. <laughs> and I, the, the multi-state operators, that's not something I've really looked into because it tends to be very corporate driven and to me kind of artificial. And that's, there's clear economics there. And I'm an economist that so you would think I would care about that, but that's not been one of my areas of focus. But I mean, there's, I don't know how that's working given the residency requirements, um, but it obviously is. On the other hand, they're having trouble in certain states. Um, but again, trying to, and this was this was a challenge of trying to aggregate across com companies when you're talking about like a husband and wife team or several different partners. And I did see this where you have like Joe, Joe has a license and Joe and Mary have a license and then Joe, Mary and Harry have a license and Harry and Mary have a license. And I mean, this is all kind of one organization together. And the trick is to, you know, figure out how to combine that down and say, well, that's all, all really just kind of one entity. And that's just kind of one of the complications of doing this analysis. Exactly. And there may not be like a, a silver bullet, but I mean, there's probably a bunch of people racking their brains on this. So anyways, if any of you have anything to add to this, but the, the final thought that came to mind, my mind, um, as you started mentioning, this was the, the residency requirements, as well as, you know, the state's kind of trying to carve out a portion for small businesses or uh, disadvantaged individuals or the craft businesses. And the perfect example was in Missouri. And I think this is playing out as we speak. Basically, Missouri award, I just was reading a news article, but Missouri awarded, I want to say maybe 16 like craft retail licenses. And then um, I think one of the requirements was the owner had to be a resident of the state. But I think there was some controversy because I think there was an out-of-state company like from Michigan who basically what I think the allegations were, once again, it's just what I read, was that they may have basically paid residents of Missouri to apply for the licenses under a contract that they basically be passing off control to this other company. So Oklahoma, In Oklahoma, the cartels have taken that practice to an art form. They're yeah. gaming the system by paying residents there. Uh, use their yeah. name to get licenses and so how much you even want to to, to uncover that uh i'll leave that up to you but so some of it that may be left up to to the officials but i was still thinking it would still be kind of interesting to still try to do say a count on say cure leaf licenses so granted it's the cannabis industry so you'd expect a little bit of obfuscation so we probably won't be able to uncover every tie, but I, I would just thinking we would at least be able to make the, the low hanging connections. So maybe there's a, just a cure leaf, a cure leaf LLC, um, so on and so forth. But anyways, uh, I think it could be interesting ongoing work because as you mentioned, the, the whole topic of MSOs is it's it's a little hot right there's uh people with pretty strong stances on both sides right there's the actual the mso's and they have their stance and then there's of course right the the small businesses who eh, 
maybe they they don't love maybe how some of the the licensing laws are being gamed in various places but i don't know um as all i know is we can calculate some interesting statistics so maybe i'll pass the ball back to your court ruth and maybe you can no, take it from here. Maybe you start showing us some of your findings. Yeah. So I'm trying to Yasha, you've got some thoughts. If I could just butt in with one more thing, something that I believe is publicly accessible in every state. Um lobbying. Which may be interesting to identify uh, who gets which license and how lobbying affects. I think Ruth pressed the wrong button. I should try to share. I'm sure she'll be right back. But you do raise a good point and I'll just talk while Ruth rejoins. But basically, I mean, we're talking about multi-state operators. So the, the one that comes to my mind is Yoshi, you mentioned lobbying was, you know, TrueLeave is famous now for trying to get adult use on the Florida ballot. And they're a company that I've noticed appears to be operating in multiple states. And they're basically one that I wouldn't mind trying to, to pin down because a lot of these MSOs, it's hard to tell, you know, who owns who. Um, you know, like, what's the relationship even between, like, uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, right, what are they called? Um, True Leave, Cresco Labs, Green Thumb Industries, these ones. I'm not even certain if those are different companies or if they're, like, sister companies. So all, I have no idea. So I would love to kind of learn more about this. Because long story short is we've been collecting COAs and like one thing I noticed was, oh, you know, True Leaves putting out like the Khalifa Kush. So it's just, you know, th these, are, these are big companies with these big brand deals. Um, and I don't think we, at least I don't know the first thing about it. Um, so I think it would be pertinent to start learning. But, but anywho, Ruth, Ruth's got the first bit of data here. So let's start. I just want to take you really quickly through kind of my process. So I started with each of the different states and looking at what are the different license types that they have available um, and the counts and then the descriptions. And the descriptions are important because I was trying to understand exactly what they're able to do. And notably, in certain states, the growers are allowed to extract plants, but in other states, they're not. And so if they're not allowed to extract, there's a natural synergy between growing and extracting the biomass. So you would expect that when they can, a lot of growers, if they're not allowed to extract, would also then get a license to manufacture so they, they can extract. And so I was, I was kind of looking at kind of what are the details here. Um, let's see, trying to go through. Are you seeing my screen move? Yes. It's moving? Yes, and just to toss in a quick anecdote, that's kind of what you would observe in, in Washington, where, of course, basically everybody trying to get the cultivation license, and then some people couldn't get that, so they just went processing. 
but typically the larger companies were trying to have the cultivation and then also the processing because you just have you know scrap flour and stuff like that that um and you know trim and all that stuff that, that you can process into edibles and all this stuff but anywho back you um and so, so you can see kind of what i did and that's where where i started and then so now again we're looking at licenses and the different types of licenses being offered by the different states so then what i did is i created the summary table and i was looking at you know which states offer separate medical and adult use licenses and then you know a lot of them don't break them out separately and then you can just see the totals for total license counts across states um and and what's interesting here is in i saw this in nevada you have there's nine testing labs and they have them separate as medical and adult use and i looked and it's the same nine labs and they're they have separate licenses for medical and for adult use so i thought that was kind of interesting that was the only state that was doing that california has separate labs and i didn't i didn't look to see if those are the same labs um but they do uh, uh, license the lab separately, whereas most states, even if they have separate medical and adults, adult, they license the labs uh, kind of jointly, and also transportation and delivery tend to be licensed jointly. Um, a couple of states, California and Massachusetts, offer microbusiness licenses. These are small guys who are doing grow, manufacturing, and sell. Um, and then you have California does a distributor. Uh, license uh, one state Vermont does a wholesale um, and as I said the transportation is B2B and the delivery is B2C and then if we just take these license counts and graph them this is what they look like and it's kind of interesting to see kind of the differences across states and in particular Oklahoma and California both have oversized grow uh, license counts relative to uh, retail and manufacturing then if we go up and take those same kind of retail grown manufacturing, bring in population, we can look at certain relationships like the number of uh, dispensaries per population. And that's really, really, really important for understanding access by consumers. Uh, are, you know, how, how easy is it for a consumer located in a legal state to access a legal dispensary? And that varies hugely across the different states. And then another interesting uh, statistic is uh, the number of dispensaries per grow operations. And this tells you if there's a ton of, of cultivators relative to dispensaries, it's gonna be really difficult for each, any of those cultivators to get shelf space on the dispensaries. And in particular in California, there's a massive shortage of shelf space because we saw over here so many growers relative to the retailers the growers can't get space on the dispensaries, which means they don't have access to customers. And again, when the, the growers can't sell directly to consumers, this gives the retailers huge leverage over the growers. Um, and it's really, it's creating a big problem. There's pay to play that the retailers are charging for shelf space. Um, and it's, it's a real problem in California. Can I, can yeah. I just comment real quick that that's maybe the most brilliant statistic I've seen all year. I, I you know that I never even thought of 
of that, right? It's just a simple ratio. And it captures, like you said, basically how easy it is to get shelf space. And in California, there was the, I saw it once again, an article that some of the latest legislation that they've passed to try to help the cannabis industry was to further limit the number of retail stores. <laughs> and, and so it's like almost like the exact opposite um, policy than what your data suggests. Because basically what your data suggests is, oh, wait, wait, wait. If you actually look at California versus all the other states, they have a, a real lack of retail. So it's not retail competition that's the problem. It's actually the lack of retail competition almost. It actually gets worse in California because, as I said, in California, you have, let me see. You go back here, you have these distributors in there, and the distributors act as a middleman. And what happens is the growers sell to the distributors. The distributors generally buy product from growers, and they turn around and sell it. To the retailers and that now creates a problem because the distributors determine which of the you know if they decide not to buy from a grower then that grower can't get into the, to the dispensary and then the other thing is if you have a distributor who who chooses which brands to represent they can choose who they're selling which brands are selling to the retailer and the retailer might be working with the distributor and they might say, well, I want XYZ's brand and the distributor will say, no, you, I'm not selling that to you. And so it's giving humongous le leverage to the distributors vis-a-vis -vis both the growers and the retailers. And this is just, I mean, it's just horrendous, the, this, the situation here. And this raises yet another topic. And once again, I only saw the headline there, so I actually need to read in further, but basically there's this uh, company, um, Navis, that's uh, claiming that they have 20% of the, the distribution market share in California. So I still actually need to, you know, research more into that. I had all this other stuff on my plate. So one thing we may want to look at is, can we substantiate that claim? You know, is it possible to look at all the distribution licenses and maybe maybe 20 percent of them are all tied to this one company navis um, it's not impossible um, so but this is where the data comes in handy so we're just kind of doing an exploratory look and there's always more things to find so yeah if any of you want to go and look at these distributor licenses in california and see if you notice a pattern um and then I was interested in the the testing labs and in California what happened was in 2019 1819 they instigated new testing requirements and they said from this point forward any cannabis that is legally available for sale has to be tested and there was a huge amount is I believe it was 2018 there was a huge amount of flour on the market that hadn't been tested and the light, the requirements went into effect as of July 1st. And in the months before July, all these uh, these brands and cultivators were dumping their product and the price crashed because as the new requirements, testing requirements kicked in, all this flour on the market 
would then be unsellable because it, none of it was tested. And then there was this mad dash to have all their the product tested, and there's this huge bottleneck in the testing labs. And so if you're going to require that all products be lab tested, you need to make sure there's enough lab, uh, labs out there in order to be able to satisfy those requirements. And so I was looking at uh, the number of growers per testing lab and number of retailers per testing lab to see where there could potentially be bottlenecks. And I'm sure Yasha might be able to speak better on this. I don't want to put you on the spot. Do you have any comments, Yasha? Uh, you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> no, let, let me, uh, I, I have, no, I'm just thinking. Okay, that's fine. Nothing, I, can, I, I wouldn't mind jumping in with a quick thought. You kind of got to see this firsthand in Washington State. Washington State didn't originally mandate pesticides or um, and the, the heavy metals was just, uh, they would just test for heavy metals if there was a reason. Actually, I think that was the case with pesticides too, but pesticides became mandated and, you know, that was uh, the the sticking point is you know when does that take effect and at what point does the product on the shelf that's being sold have to be tested for pesticides and they, it kept kind of getting pushed back and so in that case i think it was almost uh, one of the things where the policy seemed to have been rolled out a little slow for my liking but it didn't seem like it gave the businesses that much of a hurdle, but it definitely, I think, had an effect on in the laboratory space because it's basically a big ask for a laboratory to just say, hey, you know, in the next year, you need to start testing for, you know, 80 pesticides and, and heavy metals because they have to then go get the instrumentation, get that set up, hire someone that can use it. But I think that may have been a, too much of a hurdle for some of the labs. So I think some of the labs may have exited the market. But um, as far as the cultivators, I think they it, it wasn't too much of a hurdle for them. But that was anyway. I just wanted to pass that off. Is that we that there was sort of a, an observed time in Washington where they added regulation. Yeah, that's anytime they change the rules, that creates this massive chaos for several months before and after as the industry tries to uh, adjust. And I've seen that happen a lot of different times. And then the kind of the last thing I did here is looking at the retail grow manufacturing and these different statistics and just ran some basic correlations. Yasha yep. may have one final point about the labs real quick before you go. Uh, just some, some quick thoughts. Uh, so grow size i think is relevant and important um, i'm assuming yeah. that the sum of all grows in the state yeah. and their capacity should be in some way re uh, related to thus the population and so it might be worthwhile to instead of comparing the number of grows to testing labs but um population to testing labs because that would be a cleaner correlation of number of products in the state to uh, testing capacity. People population? Yeah. As a proxy for total grow? I, I think so, because number of grows, uh, 
unless you know the size of each grow. Yeah, yeah, you can't get that data. Yeah, but but you could get uh, the market that they're serving, which yeah. is the yeah. population, and likely you know eight percent of all of us smoke, regardless of what state we, what legal state we live in. And that way, um, th that could be one of the factors. Another one is within regulations. Uh, let's say in Massachusetts, a uh, batch, uh, every 15 pound batch yeah. needs to be tested. In another right. state, it might be different. 50 it's 50 in California. Mm -hmm. I, I think that would be the right ratio to consider taking into account the batch sizes, the population, and testing labs. That That might be a cleaner way to compare. I have a population right here. Yeah, I, I wasn't able to do the math quickly enough before. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> when, one thing that statistic could kind of show, though, is basically the, the average number of clients per lab. So, so it's basically, does the lab have a lot of clients, or do they just have, you know, a, a few large ones? Um, here, well, I did a correlation. Can you see that? So we have, and I just kind of put it in yellow, mm -hmm. yep. the population per testing lab. And it's, I mean, it's it's not low, but it's not as high as, for example, retail manufacturing. Seem for whatever, that's an odd correlation there, I think. Uh, the number of processing licenses uh, and the number of retail licenses, according to this, are highly correlated, which I find kind of interesting. Is this for a specific state or across state. correlations across states? So states that tend to have more dispensary licenses also tend to have more manufacturing licenses. Mm -hmm. Yasha, you got the direction right. So it does seem you have more population, more testing, but it's not not perfect. Um, so yes, there's some other things going on there. But yeah, it's amazing how population ex does explain it good about Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was pretty much kind of the different stuff I looked for, looked at looking at license counts. Then I moved on to try and understand, again, kind of compress those or collapse the number of licenses to the particular person or organization to see you know, by person or organization, what is the combination or pattern in licenses that they have? And I, here's a bunch of states I can show you, for example. Here's, here's the drum roll. Ba -ba 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 yeah. Drum roll. So Massachusetts, the guy with the most licenses is, is Sierra Naturals. And they have a total of nine licenses, three retailers, three cultivator, two manufacturing. Um, and uh, Massachusetts isn't particularly concentrated. Connecticut, you can see it's a bit more concentrated. Um, here you have Cure Leaf. Illinois, here you have the MSOs here, and obviously they're allowed a maximum of 15 licenses. Um, and I was also interested in, again, as I mentioned earlier, whether or not they're doing only adult use, only medical use, or they're doing both. Um, and you can see here they're doing um, both adult use and medical um, and Maryland and Vermont. Um, Nevada is a bit more concentrated. Um, but kind of where I started at the beginning was look, looking at California 
And so we know that you have you know, cultivation licenses, growth licenses for small canopies, medium canopies, and large canopies. And as I, you know, kind of started out, I think I said that cannabis started as craft growers and small guys. And in California in particular, there were, you know, you had, you had medical started out in 96. And by the time adult use was legalized uh, 20 years later in 2016, you had 60,000 small grow operations in California. And those guys were promised that they would have a seat at the table and they would be invited to participate in the legal adult use market. And at the last minute, they they added a word to the requirements. They were going to start out saying, well, we're going to give an advantage to small growers uh, for the first couple of years and enable them to get a head start before we start allowing the bigger guys to come in. And at the last minute, they added a word that enabled owners to stack licenses, which means you can, you know, you can issue small grow licenses, but if one guy can now own 10 licenses, it kind of defeats the purpose. And so you want to see what's going on in California right now? This is this. <laughs> well, and as you mentioned, that was here's what you have. I just want to do this. This one guy in California has 226 small grow licenses. I think that kind of defeats the purpose. Can you, can you, know? you show that one? We, we, and, and that's and that's it. And that's at least Ruth. There could be like some uncovered connections that may be hard to pin down. Um, let me see. I'm trying to figure out. It, this seems like um, a good version of the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Here you where... go. Can you see that? There mm -hmm. you go. This one guy, Bernard Steinman, is 226 to... licenses, and they're actually all small licenses. I'm sorry to put all these people on the spot, but hey, um, over. well, we saw it up there on the list, right? There's the, what's well, the there's, yeah, is he the owner of Glasshouse Farms? Glasshouse Farms, yeah, and he has 102 cultivation licenses, and this guy has 160 grow licenses. And you can see they're mostly grow guys. They're not doing a lot in terms of, you know, manufacturing or selling. But again, to have 220 licenses, to me, that's obscene. And, and this is why, Ruth, the work you're doing, I think these are groundbreaking statistics. I don't know how many people have done stuff like this. And like, and as Josh's point, uh, the you may need to say it again but the the what was it the the words of the law versus the spirit of the law letter of the or law the letter of the law because the people of california and the way a lot of the policies are sold is that they're saying that hey you know we're going to issue x amount of licenses like 2000 or what have you or 400 licenses and the way that sold is oh yeah that's going to be you know 400 businesses you know 400 lucky individuals but 
or in California, um, I think there's like what, like eleven thousand licenses or something. Yeah, ten thousand. Yeah. So it sounds like, oh, you know, this is a, a vibrant, healthy market, tons of licenses to go around. But then when you start realizing that sometimes hundreds are concentrated, it's it's yeah, it's a little odd. You know, why why not just give them? Or, or maybe it's not odd. Maybe that's just yeah, they operate in a bunch of cities and you need a bunch of licenses to operate in various cities. So I don't know. Um, all I know is it's a good statistic <laughs> to make you think. A, a quick, uh, I hope you guys don't mind me consistently butting in. I think no. this is awesome. First <laughs> off, th this is awesome. Um, I see, you know, the numbers and I'm curious how they st stack up against Bedford's law and whether there is a correlation to if we can any, in any way define what a healthy market is and whether we should expect for this to correlate to Bedford's law or not. Um, I Let me, this is a bit premature, let me show you some of the other stuff that I've done. Um, because I'm I'm trying to get at these types of things now. Unfortunately, um, I'm looking at all of these types of analyses at the market structure to say what's healthy and what's kind of fair. Now, you know, life isn't fair. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, in cannabis, it's very political, and it's 100% regulation driven. And so, you know, we can say, well, the small guys and the legacy guys who created the industry should be the ones to be able to profit from it. But in reality, that's not what's happening. And over the years, I've been trying not to be as idealistic and try to be more pragmatic. And I have a hard time with that. Um, and it's the way I see it's going is the regulations are forcing consolidation. You're seeing the exact same thing in, in the healthcare industry and in other industries, but the regulations are absolutely forcing consolidation. They're giving massive advantages to the large players. And it's probably not a coincidence um, because the large players are probably lobbying or have connections with the legislators and there's chaos everywhere and blah, 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 and not telling anyone anything they don't already know. It's just, for me, very disappointing to kind of see it all play out. It's like watching a crash in slow motion uh, to watch the industry evolve over time. Oh, so uh, one thing is lobbying. Ruth, are you still with us? Uh, yes. Lobbying is public as in every lobbyist must register with their state identifying who they represent uh, th that could be a <laughs> uh, how much luck have they paid for could be well <laughs> you know i wonder though how much is not being reported like it's supposed to because there's so much corruption you're not going to report that you're getting under the table payoffs it's just well what i think of it's just tough to connect the dots um like so for example just i just started googling some of these things like so for example the co first company you mentioned sierra naturals did a quick search for them and it looks like they may once again don't quote me on this they may have been bought out or have some connection to air air well air. 
yeah. near wellness. Yeah. They're, um, they're in Florida headquartered, I believe. Exactly. And um, so it's, What if you just like have like a sister company that does lobbying? You know, what if there's just some other LLC that's lobbying? Like, would there really be any way to, you know, connect, connect those dots? No, I, you know, I've heard some investigative journalists uncovering corruption, um, but it's it's a full time job and it's not easy. Um, uh, well, okay. well, what we and that actually we can maybe work on this for next week. One thing I was going to still working on, right, is it's going to take a, a full time job. Well, opening eyes release their assistance. So I was thinking this would almost be a good job to get like a little AI assistant to help us on, right? Because it, to help you on, right? Because it's you know, you need some uh, need someone to you know read all the regulations, and then you know look up all the company names, look up all the the business licenses, you know do do a match on the various names there. So it may seem like this insurmountable feat, but it may be approachable um, with the tools we have. So, so anywho, we just want to say that. It's a it's a mess right now, but I think we could at least do a, a little bit of sorting out. But anyways, please continue, Ruth. Okay, so now we've switched and we're not looking at licenses, we're looking at licensees. Um, and so I started with, you have the total number of licenses by state and collapsed it down to licensees. And so we can look at the average number of licenses per licensee across states to see kind of a, a sense of, get a sense of uh, concentration. Um, and those are basically, and, like say, those are companies like an LLC who just has multiple licenses under yes, the same yes. name syndrome. Okay. So here, you mentioned in California, I had 10,327 total licenses and I collapsed it down. Now there's some duplicates because I wasn't gonna go through 10,000 line items. Um, so I, I use some some kind of quick and dirty ways to collapse that down, um, and my analysis might not be perfectly reproducible because it's kind of like we saw when you're looking at string names and you have different syntax, you have spaces, you have commas, you have apostrophes. You know, trying to determine which of those are actually the same industry is both art and science. Um, and I tried to be as conservative as possible. In other words, not collapsing it down unless I was, you know, pretty sure that it was the same uh, entity. So in California, I ended up with 4,100 licensees, but I know that there are duplicates in there, so I could collapse that down further, but I just didn't want to take the time to do it. Well, this is where Candace actually may be able to help you out because I kind of had tasked uh, Candace on a similar project to, to kind of actually piggyback on the work you're doing, which is basically to use natural language processing to try to, and we can actually try to find ones with very, very strong matches. Um, 
I use the combination. Now, some states provide more information than others. So some will only provide a business name, a DBA, and say an owner, but others will also provide addresses and phone numbers. So I can look and see, okay, these five businesses all have the same phone number. So it's the same business. And, and so I used a couple of different methods like that, but it was, it was still pretty quick and dirty. So uh, go ahead. There's a quick thing of, I, this may absolutely not apply, but could that fuzziness of name use be on purpose? Co no, commonplace. Could the dirtiness of name use be common throughout each state that let's say 30% of all states names would be common? It's it just an academic question. Of course, that's there's, I mean, there's most of it though is just, and I've worked with patent data and I saw the exact same thing there. So I was looking at patents and I want to know, okay, how many patents does IBM have? So you go into the field and the database that says assignee and you say, okay, you know, tell me all the IBM patents. And the problem is you have company, you have the assignee is in one case, IBM, and in other cases, IBM comma Inc. In other case, it's IBM Inc. IBM space space, you know, I period, B period, M period, international business machines. And these are all the same organization, yet they're not cleaned in the database. And I looked at a lot of different patent data sets and none of them had cleaned them, which I, I think would be a very valuable thing. Maybe they've done it by now, but I looked at a lot because I spent a lot of time with patent data. And I know that all of the analysis out there that I saw must have been massively inaccurate because if they're saying, well, IBM has 10,000 patents, I seriously doubt they went and actually did the job of properly cleaning it. So just kind of a comment. But likely Microsoft, Apple, other big companies have the same ratio of different names used. Well, well the question is, a lot yes, of them yes. is, is noisy syntax, but okay, so you're saying that, that noise is probably constant. That's an actually a really interesting idea. I never thought about that. That's it's a it's an assumption of statistics, right? If you're right doing ordinary least squares, you assume the error is not correlated with uh, the individuals. And it's a really strong assumption. Um right, because IBM's that's a pretty simple name, but then you know you throw on you know some you know some cannabis companies that are maybe intentionally being a little misleading. You know, there's their errors not going to be the same. So that's not a perfect example, but I love it, Yasha, because it it brings up you know these important assumptions in statistics. Um, but but anywho. Uh, and once again, that only applies to very certain cases, but uh, yeah, it's just always something to think about. Let's see. Okay, so let's do the first thing is just to look at, just like I looked at, okay, so now what I did is I looked at, and this is looking at the organization of companies within the industry. So retail is companies or licensees that only have retail licenses and they don't have grow and they don't have manufacture only retail but they could have more than one the grow thing is 
licensees that only have grow licenses. So like that one first license holder in California, he had 236, but they were all grow licenses. So he would count under a grow guy. And then these are only manufacturers. These are retail and grow operations, retail and manufacturing operations, grow and manufacturing, then all three, the trifecta. And so what do the licensees look like? And you see in California, you have a huge number of licensees are just growers, not involved in any other aspect of the industry. And you see the same thing in Vermont. Then in California, you have a large number of licensees that are only doing selling. And you see the same thing in Massachusetts. And then as far as doing all three together, you get some of those, but not as many. And what's interesting is the proportion of companies across states that are doing just one segment of the industry. I thought that was really interesting. Well, um, it's because almost most states have, except yeah. for a very few, like, uh, and we don't have uh, data on them here, like Florida, they've, they've basically tried to regulate against vertical integration. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, 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 we'll have to go back and look to see why. I assume it's to try to minimize the risk of diversion, because maybe if you're growing it, processing it, and selling it, you know, there's a it's a big black box. Maybe my understanding was they were doing that to prevent monopolization of the industry. And so here I calculated that statistic. What portion of the businesses are just retail or just cultivation grow or just manufacturing? And you're seeing 80 to 90% across most states. And then what ties into that is the question I said before is um, in a lot of cases, the growers cannot extract. Um, so in, let's see, where is it? Alaska, California, Connecticut, growers are not allowed to extract. So in those states, you would expect more growers to also manufacture. So that would be this 5%, 3%, 2%. And that's relatively low, especially relative to Massachusetts, where the growers are able to extract and still they're going into further processing. So I haven't explored these in deeper detail, but I mean, a lot of questions here on why they're combining in the ways that they are. Um, and then I just, I cut this off uh, so you can see some of the small detail a little better. Final, final kind of relevant piece of detail, and I'm not even sure what to make of this, but just going to put it on the table, see what you think of it. I think it goes uh, both ways, but what do you think of um, like white labeling? Yeah. So it seems like there's br uh, brands out there. I think we maybe noticed some in Florida where there's you know a famous brand but it looks like they've basically contracted with just a you know a smaller scale cultivation license and so it's the cultivation is licensed but they're just branding under the bigger brand i don't know if that's pertinent here or not but um. well those would be those would be formulators the the white labelers they i'm actually working on behalf of one or against one in a lawsuit <laughs> Uh, a big uh, white labeler uh, and they're integrated that they they 
they contract farmers, they buy biomass, they do extraction, they, they uh, white label and private label products. Um, so they sell to other manufacturers. They also sell to brands who sell to retailers. Uh, they are not integrated into retail, but there's a lot of um, manufacturers out there that are doing the white labeling uh, service. I know this because I've done a lot of research in the area. So that's almost like the, the distributor. So it's basically like the distributor. Um, they're formulators. They're not just, they're formulators. They're creating the product that all the different. So I could go in and go, you know, I could pay them $10,000 and get my Ruth Fisher brand of CBD product. They're a hemp, hemp manufacturer. Well, once again, it's something I know very little about, but it's something that I would love to learn more about. And once again, if you have any uh, beans you're willing to, to spill on this, then I'm always interested. Um, because it's, once again, I always try to keep my ear to the ground and see what, what the talk on the town is. And the white labeling seems to be... It's huge. Yeah, huge. Because what it's doing is it provides, it enables anyone to enter the industry without having to get a license to do anything. So they don't need any, there's no upfront fixed costs or no, you know, requirements, no grappling, no anything. They just go in, they pay someone. You can actually go in, you can pay someone to give you a product. You can pay someone to market the product. You can pay someone to sell the product. So you don't actually need to touch it at all. And you can, you know, have your own industry uh, surrounding kind of your branding of your product. And a lot of people are, are doing that. I mean, in a way, that sounds positive because, you know, if that's your talent, and, and I've actually heard somebody talk about this, that, yeah, if your talent is branding. And so, for example, right, there's a bunch of celebrities that are kind of rolling out their various strain names um right there's some with cookies and then of course right there's willie nelson and then um bah, bah, bah. there's uh the garcia families rolled out uh, like the garcia brand so and i think they're probably just white labeling some cultivation license so i could see uh it being complete uh, like just a harmless positive aspect to just get your value out there but it, but maybe you said there's also maybe a the, the other side the dark side of white labeling <laughs> right but i think there's a lot more there yeah so yeah definitely so back to you Ruth. yeah okay so then i was looking at kind of concentration and we're looking at california so those three guys have a ton of, of the licenses so 0.1 percent of the licensees own seven percent of all the licenses and that's the most concentrated state uh, Connecticut comes in second uh, and you can see for example um, see Massachusetts is less concentrated and Maryland is less concentrated so again the blue bars are the percent of the licensees and the orange bars are the percent of the total licenses so if a small number of licensees owns a large portion of the licenses the industry is more concentrated and this is looking at just the top five guys and we can say well what if we look at the top 10 guys and the what we see here is that the concentration is mostly within the top five guys and we saw that very clearly in california when the top three guys 
had 400 some odd licenses. And then let's I see. I wonder what the relative percentage is, right? Kind of like I'm thinking per, like the Pareto principle, but this is maybe more skewed than that. Like, um, yeah. We're like, we're like, you'd think, oh, 80% of the markets with 20% of the yeah, licenses. Yeah. I did that in my last analysis. I didn't do that here to say what portion of the licensees owns 80% of the licenses kind of thing. Um, so that's a, another way to do it. So then um, second to last is what portion of total licensees in the market have only a single license? So I have my one dispensary license or my one grow license. Like a true small. Yes. Small and the most is in Vermont where it's actually almost 80% of the licensee licenses. This is percent of total licenses. So 80% of the licenses held in Vermont are owned by people who have a single license. This could be a, you were, you were trying to say that you were after the policy implications of various poly, cannabis policies in different states. Well, now I think you've, you hit on something, right? When you cal you're calculating statistics, you want one that jumps out at you. And this one's definitely one of those. So it, I think it would be pertinent to, yes, to, let's look into the Vermont regulations and see what is it that's encouraging what appears to be small businesses there. And a ton, an oversized number of grow licenses. I mean, Vermont's small. Who's buying all that product? So they must be, maybe those are home growers. <laughs> and then the last thing I looked at is, um, it's this these statistics on a percent basis and this is just arranged in alphabetical order by state so 20 percent of the licensees are retail only 47 percent are grow only eight percent are manufacturing only nine percent are retail and grow and then the other 10 percent are a combination of the other three integrations so you can see Nevada has the highest percentage, actually Massachusetts has the highest percentage that are doing grow and manufacture and retail. Um, and now we, if we sort it by grow operations, Maryland has the highest percentage of retail only. And then that falls. And then I also sorted it by either retail or grow or manufacture. So a total here in Illinois of over 90% are in only one segment of the industry. I, I like this chart because this kind of shows almost how some states have a pretty healthy like, yep. cannabis ecosystem. Yep. And, and you know, Nevada, right, you've got a couple things there to gripe about with the regulations, but they are like you said, they're putting out a bunch of different license types and they just introduced the consumption lounges. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Nevada is a pretty cool state. Definitely one to keep an eye on. And, and then good old Massachusetts. And, yeah. and that's all I have. <laughs> Four minutes over. Oh, oh this, I that's love it. it. And, that's it. You just you just came up with you know one of the coolest statistics of the year, showed California just what's wrong with their policies, 
with the actual statistics. And then you raised a bunch more avenues for future research. We can research distribution in California. We can use natural language processing on the business names. We can play detective and try to see which companies are connected, who's lobbying for what, where. And then we can also look at the various states, you know, what's going on in Vermont. You know, we, Connecticut's near and dear to the heart of some meetup members. And so th th there's more statistics there. I, I love your analysis, Ruth. Um, a quick, sorry, funny, always. Um, oh, please. I really like how whenever there's really interesting, whenever work like this gets done, you see some interesting things, and that opens the door for many more questions. Where, like Keegan, you said, with California, maybe that's problematic, what's happening there, but it's questionable whether it's a problem or whether what Vermont being on the opposite side of that equation, whether that's a problem. Maybe there's like a middle ground that is best for everyone. I, I, I just don't know. But there's so many questions to ask here and so, so much more digging to do. But awesome to see all of this as is. It, it's an interesting perspective because it kind of goes to the point um, that there's always, you know, uh, two sides to every coin, right? And I'm sure most businesses have ambitions to get big, but it's, you know, what, what does like a, a healthy big cannabis company look like versus a company that's got maybe unintended dominance that's maybe having unintended effects on the market? Um, because I, I don't think any people set out to create unfair markets right most of these states are trying to create a functioning cannabis market like that was the the intended goal and you know policies don't always get it right any economist can tell you that but the only way we can tell is to measure it and this is one of the first measures i've seen that's been so in-depth I think that uh, the structure tells you a lot about kind of natural affinities or synergies. And so if you think about, say, growing and extracting, if you grow a real high quality plant, but if you can't get the chemicals out well, then you're essentially, you know, ruining or killing uh, all the effort that was put in. So there's a natural affinity to combine growing, growing and extracting especially when the percentage of flower sales or use is decreasing over time. So I would fully expect in a very healthy market to see a combination of grow and extract, or at least to have the growers um, be allowed to extract. Um, and then, you know, if you're a retailer and you have those, uh, those, those problems where there's too many retailers relative to growers, and you want to be assured of being able to get the product on your shelves that you want to get on your shelves, then you can see integrating backwards into, say, growing and selling. Um, 
and, and there's there's other things out there and you and what i noticed early on is when i was looking at certain kind of oddities or just things that you know oh gee why are they doing that i found that you know i started reading and, and i found like about the testing issue well there's this bottleneck in testing or what happened was as i said um the the growers are not allowed to transport product to the retailers or to the manufacturers, you need licensed uh, licensed transporter. And in California, they started out and the licensees were separate, but there was a bottleneck in transportation because there weren't enough transporters. So you had all these growers sitting on their product and they couldn't get it into the dispensaries. And so what happened is a lot of growers also got transport licenses so they could overcome that bottleneck. And so that kind of points out a problem in the system when you see a lot of the growers, you know, buying licenses or, or getting licenses to also transport. This is exactly what we set out to do. Because remember last week we had our ecology caps on and we were basically trying to look at the cannabis industry like an ecosystem. And then this week we said, oh, we're going to look at, say, various types and look at the similarities by state. And that's basically exactly what you've done is basically if you think about the licensees as various types in each state as an ecosystem, we, we're basically just comparing ecosystems to see which one's a healthy one and which one uh, is maybe imbalanced. Um, I think oh, no, it looks like I can keep talking about this all day. I'm really fascinated about this. Um, there was um, a data scientist out of Washington, Jim McRae. Uh, he used a um, grading system for individual labs from which he had data. And uh, I would, I, I think it'd be really fascinating if you came to some conclusions on what is healthy within a market in terms of licenses and some sort of grading system. I, I don't know if that's feasible, if there, if that's too much subjectivity. I, I know that there has been, I've heard other people talk about, let's see, going back to this type, um, this type of analysis looking mm -hmm. at the balance between uh, growers and retailers. Uh, and actually, I don't know if I've seen so much growers as retailers, the optimal number of retailers. And if you look at Oklahoma, Oklahoma, we know um, there, um, Oklahoma is, it's an exercise in seeing whether or not free markets work. So in Oklahoma, if you want to get a license, all you need is a residency to be a resident. And I believe it's $2,500 get any license and they didn't cap them. So anyone could get a license to do anything. And so funny, it's a red state. Um, and they have more, way more dispensaries per person than any other state. They just blow every other state out of the water. But obviously, they're going to have a lot of problems because a lot of the the, re, the dispensaries are going to go out of business. 
and I, I've thought a lot about is it better to have a free market where you allow anyone to come in and you're going to have way too much entry and there's going to be a lot of chaos and a lot of shakeup and eventually you're going to end up with some winners and losers and you could very well end up with consolidation over time and so you kind of can you know move towards having a few bigger guys in the market and i mean that's good and that's bad it's good because anyone has a chance it's bad because a huge number of people are going to spend a lot of money and lose their life savings and several years of their life involved in this on the other hand, the alternative is for the state to come in and say, okay, we're gonna charge $100,000 and we're gonna limit it to say, you know, 100 people. Well, they need to then choose who's gonna get those licenses and it becomes completely arbitrary from an economic standpoint. You know, in, in economics, we say, you know, the most efficient, you know, from a welfare maximizing standpoint, the most efficient firms should win out. And when you go over to regulation and politics, that's just, that doesn't happen that way. It's not based on efficiency, who should win, who's best able to serve the market, it becomes, you know, who's the most cloud or money or whatever. In that case, it's much cleaner because you don't get all that chaos and you don't get all the bankruptcies, but the people who end up winning are a completely different set of people. And, you know, there's a lot of people arguing in California that there's just you know too many licenses or in Oklahoma that there's too many licenses well it's like well who determines the right number and the problem is is then you start end up having the government pick the winners and losers I don't know that that's any better and I mean one takes longer so it's going to take longer to get to a settled state of equilibrium but again I don't know the right answer I tend to go for free markets but it involves a lot of chaos and it involves a lot of bankruptcies and a lot of people don't like that. But if, if you could have a, I guess, multi-dimensional metric for a good market, yeah, then this is such an excellent A-B test yeah. for, for what yeah. works. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the beauty of the federalist system where you have 50 different states each doing their own thing because you can figure out what's, you know, kind of best or at least, you know, what are some of the conditions that promote better outcomes than others. Yeah. Democracy's laboratory. <laughs> so, but it's, I mean, Ruth, you, you raised a lot of good points. And one thing that kind of comes to mind is you know from the economics point of view if a company tries and they they fail it may still be a net positive for the economy of oklahoma because it gave a lot of um economic activity to all the hvac people you know the you know all the accountants and bookkeepers the the bankruptcy lawyer so yeah, is there a secondary metric for what's good? I think there's a general rule of uh, maybe economists have like some sort of uh, general multiplier that they've kind of estimated, um, but but that's what's called like a multiplier effect. I think. Um, uh, as always, guys, I have to jump uh, early. It, oh, it's been a long conversation. So I think. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for hosting, Ruth. Thank so you cool. for making this happen. This was 
a long ado analysis. I'll let you go on and get out of here and enjoy your days. We will have a lot of ideas for next week. And as always, thank you for advancing cannabis science.